Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. On this week's episode of the podcast, we talk about Tesla firing an employee for posting a driver assist review on YouTube. We talk about Microsoft Studio, the initiative, not doing too well when it comes to producing games. And we talk about the brand new Apple products are finally reviewed, Mac Studio and Studio Display. So our first topic of of the day uh, is regarding Tesla and an employee they recently fired uh, after he showed the full self-driving beta uh, to the world on his his YouTube channel. Apparently, he has a YouTube channel called AI Addict, uh, and he was fired last month in February after he was showing a lot of unreleased information regarding what they were working on at the time, which was, you know, the future of full self-driving on the Apple cars. And as a matter of fact, this was specifically a beta. Sorry, I said Apple cars. I meant Tesla cars. Yeah, I was like, Apple car? What? (laughs) Tesla cars. Apple doesn't have a car yet. But um, he was was using a a full self-driving beta, which was essentially, I guess... uh, sneak peek on what they were working on but i imagine anyone who had this enabled on their vehicle probably had to do some kind of non-disclosure or you know not go into depth about what was actually involved in this for probably a couple of reasons maybe to protect you know the future of tesla self-driving from competitors because that is a key feature for tesla vehicles and i would imagine they want to keep their their tech and their ideas under wraps uh, until it's released to the public. But also, there could be an issue where, you know, this is a beta. There could be problems that, you know, aren't indicative of a final product, a fully polished product. And they probably wouldn't want, you know, the the chance of any bugs or anything like that getting out to the public, potentially ruining the image of full self-driving uh, because, you know, someone was talking about something that wasn't actually released to the public and was still being worked on so yeah this this was kind of a a strange situation where you know tesla just felt like they had to get rid of this employee for sharing this information now it's interesting because uh like we mentioned this was published on a youtube channel uh so maybe this could have been an employee's you know way of trying to get some youtube views uh by showing something that wasn't uh, initially released which is kind of interesting, um, you know, that's that's always a risky thing, especially with something like Tesla, because we have seen a lot of Tesla leaks come from, like, drone shots of the factories and stuff like that. Like, a lot of stuff that Tesla's working on gets out there. And in the past, they haven't really been too strict on, you know, forcing people to stop that. Like, we, we constantly see drone shots of their factories and stuff like that. So... This could be a change potentially in Tesla of, of trying to crack down on their IP and, you know, being a little bit more of a traditional company in terms of not, you know, letting everything they're working on get out there. But yeah, this is kind of an interesting story. I'm curious. Uh, are you aware of what happened here with, with uh, this employee? His name is John Bernal. And uh, do you think it was a smart decision to maybe show off to the public when clearly, you know, he's an employee and he probably was under an NDA. Um, I think it was a terrible decision by him. Yeah. Terrible decision. It was, it was, uh, I mean, I would say career suicide, but now he's the guy who, you know, leaked the self-driving thing from Tesla. So, you know, now he has, I guess, some public notoriety, mm-hmm. but I saw, I heard about it. He sh- in the video, he shows the car in full self-driving mode. Um, and, you know, he says, oh, yeah, this car is handling pretty well. And then at some points, it kind of it runs through a red light. At some points, it turns right without stopping. It, there's, you know, some pylons that it runs over at some points. But then there's other times where it kind of slows down to let another vehicle merge lanes. And it stops and it knows that, okay, there's pedestrians crossing in front of me. Don't drive over these pedestrians. And then continues to drive afterwards. So it showed good stuff that the self-driving is doing. And it showed bad stuff that the self-driving is doing. And, you know, as you mentioned, this is a beta. 
it's beta testing right now. And anytime anything is beta tested, you're generally, there's generally some sort of NDA. You know, you don't have to work for a company. Like anytime there's been beta testing for games, let's say, it's, you're not allowed, you have to, you know, digitally sign something that says you can't show gameplay footage. You can't stream gameplay footage because companies don't necessarily want a beta version of whatever they're launching. And for those of you who don't know, a beta is like before something is ready to launch, they do a small test, let's say with consumers or with a small group of people just to try and work out some bugs before it's actually launched. Cause you know, until you have a, a large number of people using certain products, there's going to be bugs that you don't find out, you know, all the time Apple comes up with phones, Samsung, anyone, who comes out with a phone, there's usually some sort of bugs that you just don't find because you don't have millions of people testing out your phone. Mm-hmm. So a beta test is kind of a way of working out some of the bugs before it's released to the mass public. Cause then there's definitely going to be bugs that people find out. But anyways, generally when there is a beta test of anything, whether it's a, a car or a phone or a video game or whatever, there's some sort of NDA that you sign to say, Hey, don't show this to the public. This isn't ready yet. We don't want this leaking out. So the fact yeah. that he was part of a beta test and leaked it, stupid. Yeah. Great if you're trying to get some publicity, but stupid if you're trying to, I guess, not get sued. Also, he works for the company. Mm-hmm. So he knows that he is, you know, he's granted certain information that the public isn't allowed to know and probably should not know because as you said, you know, there are competitors out there, especially in electric vehicles, especially self-driving in electric vehicles. There's a lot of competitors out there that are kind of, you know, aiming for Tesla. So to put out how their beta testing is performing before Tesla is ready for it, it's kind of just, you're just handing their, competitors something on a silver platter right i can imagine after this video came out i'm sure there's a lot of people like polestar who are saying oh we're gonna make a commercial that says our self-driving cars don't run through red lights yeah and like use some of this guy's footage because he's just giving them ammunition to use against tesla and that's the thing too is you mentioned you know drone footage flying over factories and that sort of thing and I see that as very different just because this guy worked for Tesla, right? Mm -hmm. So they, like, as I said, you know, he has certain information from the inside that you can't get from flying over, flying a drone over a factory, right? So let's say as someone who's interested in how electric vehicles are developing and someone who's interested how self-driving is developing, great. I I'm very interested to see it, but you know, in terms of this guy, if I was his friend and he asked me, Hey, should I leak this video footage? Definitely don't leak it. Also don't like put yourself in the video either. Yeah. Like if you're going to leak it, give it to some sort of publicist, some sort of, I don't know, news anchor reporter and say, okay, I'm a, I'll be a confidential source. Don't, put my name out there. Don't, you know, say where you got this from. Don't use my voice in this, or if you are, maybe distort it. But the fact that he put this out himself on his own YouTube channel, he was just asking to get fired. Yeah. Um, so I know I've heard some people say that, oh, he did nothing wrong. Tesla shouldn't have fired him. This isn't fair. It's, I think he knew exactly what he was doing, you know, good for him for, I guess, still going through with it anyways. But yeah, probably not the smartest decision for him career wise, but Hey, you know, like, cool. We got to look at some of Tesla's beta testing for its self-driving functions. Well, yeah. And I could imagine it was an enticing idea to make videos of this. Cause I'm, I'm just looking at his channel now and it looks like these videos have been going on for quite a while where, and they're, they're kind of popular videos on YouTube. I've seen uh, one before. If I can remember the name of the channel, I'll, I'll give it a shout out. But this idea of taking Tesla's FSD uh, 
self-driving tech to its limits and, and, you know, seeing where it will fail and where it will succeed compared to, you know, if you're driving on your own or, or you know, some competitors self-driving measures. And it, it's really fun to watch because, quite frankly, Tesla has marketed their self-driving as autopilot and full self-driving and, you know, it should be able to do everything for you. And seeing how that works, especially if you're a potential buyer, how that works in reality is is definitely going to be a huge factor on whether or not you might buy the vehicle. Because especially if you're someone who doesn't enjoy driving, the idea of a car driving for you would sound really enticing or if you just have really long commutes. So it seems like he's been doing videos like this for a while, stressing this beta, stress testing this beta to see how far you could push the cameras and the tech behind these vehicles uh, before they fail. And some of the videos are, are labeled quite dramatically, like, you know, FSD crash, um, FSD beta crash and stuff like that. Like, you know, definitely trying to entice people to to see the limits of, of where this thing will fail, which I imagine if you're Tesla, that's not great because you don't want the narrative of FSD failing to be out there when you're trying to sell a product. Uh, but yeah, on the other hand, though, you know, this is something that happened, you know, last month and we're still getting getting pretty recent videos uh, on self-driving and and beta. So maybe this is something that was filmed probably before the firing or uh, maybe before they revoked his beta status. Uh, but, you know, still continuing to, to push these videos. And within the last two days, uh, I believe managed to gain 5.7 thousand subscribers and counting in the last two days with as this you know this news kind of caught back up in the news cycle and you know started getting more and more uh eyes on it so yeah who knows maybe it could have been a good move of you know how to get a bunch of subscribers in a short amount of time get fired from tesla i guess yeah i mean i'm surprised he hasn't come out with a video yet saying i just got fired from tesla they don't want you to know this or you know some sort of yeah clickbait so title maybe it's coming soon maybe he's in the works right now yeah, that's a fantastic title. That that'll definitely get yeah. me to click. Hey, yeah. Um, just in case he does post it, I want ten percent of your uh, <laughs> revenue off of that video. All right. Uh, so our second topic today is actually about Microsoft and their flagship studio called the Initiative. Uh, so this is an interesting one. There was an, a report from VGC interviewing some or talking to some former initiative game developers who if anyone doesn't isn't aware the initiative is a studio that microsoft created themselves uh and it was created with the head formerly of crystal dynamics as the head of the studio and essentially what they wanted to do is they wanted to build a studio from the ground up that was dedicated to what they called triple a uh or very high-end like gaming experiences kind of competing with what sony was doing with the likes of naughty dog and stuff like that. The thing is, the studio was really small. And, you know, it was being formed and working on a, on a game, a Perfect Dark game, actually, that was announced a couple years ago. And they were working on them during a pandemic, unfortunately, which I think led to a lot of employees working in remote locations. And when you're in a, a video game kind of video game studio atmosphere, it's a very collaborative kind of endeavor. So, to be separated like that, I imagine, was no small feat for this studio. Uh, we've seen this affect a lot of studios over the, the past few years. But the really interesting thing is, a few months ago, we got information that Microsoft had actually hired Crystal Dynamics, a studio that's owned by Square Enix, to come in and support the initiative in making the Perfect Dark game, which was kind of surprising. That's not something you really ever hear of having a third-party studio being hired or contracted, especially one as big as Crystal Dynamics, that's a gigantic studio, uh, to make a game for you. Usually, if you're going to do that, you're going to hire the studio outright, um, kind of like what uh, Nintendo has done with things like Smash Brothers or, or something like that. Or, you know, you're just going to handle it in-house and hire in your studio. But they didn't do that. They brought in this Crystal Dynamics uh, to help them out. And people were, thought that might have been a little bit strange. And we finally got the answer as to why that happened. It turns out within the past year, over half of the initiative team has quit, has left. 
And it's been a very tumultuous uh, time for that studio. And a lot of the people who have left are actually really high ranking uh, officials in that studio from game designers to leads in almost every single department from QA to art all throughout the studio, just all the, all these leads. And the interesting thing is this was, like I mentioned, uh, over half the studio that picked up and leave. Now, this was a smaller studio. It was just around uh, under 100 people, I think under 70 people, actually, which is very strange for a really high level developers. Usually those are hundreds of people. Um, this was under, under 50 now. Under 50 now. Yeah. And a lot of the the com- complaints of the, the employees that, that left, according to uh, VGC, was that they didn't feel like they had autonomy. They felt like this was a very delegation-heavy studio where a lot of the the delegation was coming from the top and they just had to do it. It wasn't a lot of collaboration. It didn't feel like, you know, the way a normal video game studio would feel. Whether this is related to the leadership, uh, like I mentioned, the leadership was also the leadership at Crystal Dynamics. So they brought in that studio because they felt that that could be someone who's uh, a bunch of people who were comfortable with that leadership style, or maybe it could have been a situation where the pandemic kind of forced their hand to not have as much of collaboration as they would normally expect because they're not all in the same office and in the same area, whether that's one of the other remains to be seen, but this does spell a lot of issues for Microsoft because quite frankly, we've seen a lot of high profile purchases from them with the likes of Bethesda and ZeniMax, and also potentially the future purchase of Activision, Activision Blizzard. And this was a situation of them building a studio from the ground up, and it doesn't seem to be going so well. Uh, So, you know, this could definitely be a situation of showing why it's easier for Microsoft to buy studios and whether or not companies should be allowed to do this because maybe they're not putting as much effort into making their homegrown studios as successful as they need to be. But I'm, I'm curious, do you have any opinions of this, of this situation in Microsoft? Do you think it's as dire as it sounds? And do you think we ever see this perfect dark game coming from the initiative? I don't think we ever see this game coming from the initiative. I think it's going to come from, I guess, you know, Square Enix. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to see, and it's kind of funny to see, right, that this seems to be a trend, I would say at least, in the Silicon Valley at large. Not necessarily just, you know, I wouldn't say this is something unique to Microsoft. Most, and, you know, I could be wrong, this could be a small sample size, but I'd say most successful, let's say, companies, startups in Silicon Valley in tech they don't have multiple things, I would say at least, that they have grown from the bottom into successful businesses, right? When you look at Microsoft, for instance, um, like they're, they're with an operating system, right? They, their successful things are, let's say, Word, Excel, Microsoft Office in general, which I would say is an extension of their operating system. Their most successful mm-hmm. thing outside of their operating system and software, I would say, is Xbox. Yeah. Which is kind of, if you think about it, like not necessarily an extension. It's definitely something different than their traditional operating system. But that is rare to see, I would say. The reason I say that is because, you know, when you look at something like like Facebook or formerly the company formerly known as Facebook, now known as Meta. They developed Facebook, but after that, anything else they've tried to develop or grow from the ground up hasn't really been successful. And where they've been successful is buying other companies that are already successful, right? They bought Instagram, they bought WhatsApp, but when they tried to develop, let's say, those own features outside of these successful companies, no one flocked to them, no one liked them. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at, I would say when you look at most tech companies, there's usually one big thing that they're known for. And then any other things that they have, it's some other company that they bought because they just were more successful than that other company. Yeah. I think it's very hard to, I guess it's very hard for lightning to strike twice. That's a good point. Right. When you look at Apple, 
they are their tech products, I would say. And I think everything is an extension of, let's say, their their hardware, I guess is the best way to look at it, right? Because that's their one successful thing outside of their hardware. And yet they have different types of hardware. They have laptops, they have phones, they have tablets. That's all essentially hardware, right? When you look at their their software, their software is successful, yes, but it's strictly on their own hardware, right? It's not like they're selling the at what is it, Apple Pages mm-hmm. or Apple uh, Numbers. They're not selling that to you know. They're not selling that to companies to use. Yeah. Companies are buying Microsoft Office, their suite of things. Most of Apple's, I guess, what could be seen as enterprise software is strictly on Mac products. And if it wasn't for those Mac products, their software wouldn't be successful. Um, so yeah, I don't, it's very, I would say it's very hard in tech in general. Maybe this could be not even just tech. This could just be business in general, mm-hmm. right? Maybe it's hard or creativity in general. You know, Maybe it's hard for lightning to strike twice, especially if you're looking at let's say branching out into a different uh, a different industry, mm-hmm. I guess is one way to look at it. So I'm not surprised that their gaming studio isn't doing well. I think maybe it's a surprise that in general, gaming has been doing so well for them. But even, you know, we've talked in the past about how Xbox isn't selling how they wanted to, how it has in the past. And we could look at that to say, okay, you know, they were successful with gaming, but now it's coming down to they're becoming a software company once again. Mm-hmm. Now they're pushing Xbox Game Pass, not just on Xbox consoles, but on Windows consoles. You know, they're branching off to phones, to tablets. So it's coming back to their bread and butter being, okay, we develop good software that people want on their products. That's what Microsoft does. And, you know, the fact that what they've been able to keep the hardware side of it afloat for 20 years is you could say, I would say that's pretty impressive, but now they're getting back down to the, okay, we're making software. So I guess as a long, long roundabout answer, I, I'm not entirely surprised that their first party game studio isn't doing well. And I think part of why not just this past, not just, you know, 2021, but just in the past couple of years, they've been buying game studios so frantically is because they've seen the writing on the walls, probably because they've been, you know, seeing it from the inside. But, hey, we're not as successful as we need to be developing games. We're going to buy these successful gaming studios to make our games for us so that we can put them on the software that we've developed. But we don't have what it takes to develop a successful game studio, which is why they've been buying studios, which is why they've partnered Square Enix, and why I don't think the initiative is going to be the ones putting out Perfect Dark. Like, I guess, you know, the initiative in conjunction with Square Enix is going to come out, but without Square Enix or some other studio, I don't think Perfect Dark is coming out, or the next Perfect Dark. Maybe even it's just Crystal Dynamics logo. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Microsoft ends up buying Crystal Dynamics from Square. But see, this is the interesting thing because this particular story kind of has me confused, specifically because let's just uh, go over quickly some of the big people who have left. We have the principal world builder, Jolyon Myers. We have the lead level designer, Chris O'Neill. We have the design director, Drew Murray. And we have the game designer, the game director, Dan Nerber. So like these are top level people along with 30 other people who have left this studio within the past year. And like I mentioned, a lot of this was, you know, too much delegation. A lot of people were also saying no progress was being made on this game at all. And the reason why I find this particularly confusing is this is a studio of maybe around 70 people um, that is supposed to be making the, you know, biggest, best games uh, for Xbox, that doesn't seem possible in a world where studios that do that can have upwards of 500 people. 
it doesn't seem like it was potentially possible for them to make any real progress on this game, which begs the question, did Microsoft have the plan of buying, you know, Activision with their world-class FPS first-person shooter developers to the point where they're like, well, maybe we won't invest in the initiative because our plan is to buy to buy a bunch of developers. Um, and right now we're just going to, you know, do the minimum amount of work until this deal kind of closes, which maybe the reason why they got Crystal in to help out was potentially because there's a potential that this deal doesn't close. Maybe it becomes an antitrust issue and, you know, the U.S. government kind of declines it. Who knows? But it's just one of those things where I don't know how this game was going to succeed with a studio of under 100 people. But, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. I, I think it's one of those situations where if this game does come out, it's going to be with a lot of help from a lot of developers like Crystal Dynamics because clearly the initiative, especially with under 50 people now, is not going to be able to do it on their own. And even when they did have their full studio, I don't know how they would have done it on their own. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you brought, you know, Activision and... Because if you look at how much money they've been spending, right? Like the Activision Blizzard deal is supposed to be a $68.7 billion deal. Yeah. Right? I'm sure they could have spared a few billions to develop the initiative if they really thought it could be successful. Yeah. Right? They're throwing, you know, tens of billions around acquiring these other gaming studios. If their focus was on developing, or if they thought, not even if they're focused, right? If they thought that they could develop if they thought they could develop a gaming studio themselves, right? Let's say they spent 80 billion in the past two years. If they thought they could develop a studio, would you not like try and put 40 billion into the initiative, hire some more people. So you're not stuck with 50 employees and what's supposed to be your flagship company. So I think, I guess, from Microsoft's point of view, the write-in has been on the wall for a while. And now we're just seeing it from the outside. And who knows, there could be more stories that come out where, you know, we start hearing about the work environment, like you mentioned, where we start hearing about, you know, there isn't as much freedom in developing or there's there isn't as much freedom for their workers as you would expect in a gaming studio, which has led to this mass exodus. And then it's also interesting to see, you know, with all these studios that they're buying, that they're purchasing, are we going to see the same thing happen with these successful studios that they're buying? And then whoever Microsoft decides to put in charge of them or put in, you know, the executive positions, are they going to bring the same sort of atmosphere that was in the initiative that caused this max exodus that we're seeing? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of questions, I guess, around how how this situation is developed and if more situations like it are going to develop in Microsoft-owned companies. I think that's what you're saying there is, is the key, right? Like, this is a really kind of weird situation where there's going to be a lot of questions because from the very beginning, it doesn't sound like this studio was given the ability to succeed. Although I will say... I do think a lot of what happened here probably came from work from home. You know, when you're starting a brand new studio and no one gets to really interact with each other in a physical space, I think it can be very difficult to be creative on a scale like that. But regardless, I I don't know how a studio of 70 people would have had the ability to create this game um, unless they had some, some really fantastic leadership, which it didn't sound like their leadership was... (laughs) was as fantastic as maybe they wanted it to be no it didn't all right and our final topic of this podcast is actually quite exciting we got some reviews of the brand new apple products specifically we got some reviews of the new ipad air we got some reviews of the iphone se and most excitingly we just today got some reviews of the new mac studio and the studio display these are really kind of crazy flagship devices from, from Apple, specifically the Mac Studio, where it's their their new M1 Ultra chip. And we're finally going to get to see some benchmarks and how it compares to the M1 Max and the M1 Pro. And spoiler alert, it's double the performance of the M1 Max. Who knew? Putting two M1 Maxes together would get you double the performance. 
Um, and yeah, it's actually really cool. The, the reviews specifically for the Mac Studio right now are overwhelmingly positive. People are really happy with this device. Uh, specifically, and I think something you mentioned last podcast, and uh, I actually completely agree with you, the port selection. The port selection is fantastic on this device. With the uh, M1 Max, it has four Thunderbolt ports, two USB ports on the front, two USB-C ports on the front, uh, a full-size SD card slot, and two USB-A ports, as well as an Ethernet jack. Like, that's just fantastic. I think that's going to cover most people's needs. And then with the M1 Max, those two... Is that M1 Max or M1 Ultra? M1 Ultra, sorry, yes. With the M1 Ultra, the USB-C ports on the front are Thunderbolt slash USB 4. Uh, but yeah, the specifically for the people, who, though, speaking of M1 Ultra, who have talked about the M1 Ultra, who got to review it, some did get the M1 Max version, some got the M1 Ultra... And specifically with the M1 Ultra, the interesting thing there is it seems to be well-cooled. The impressions seem to be like, hey, this thing isn't going to overheat on you. You're going to get your great performance. It's going to be sustained. And it's going to be quiet, which is uh, great to hear because that's always been a key feature of Apple's products and specifically Apple's M1 products. Uh, You know, most of them don't even have fans on them with things like the M1 uh, MacBook Air and obviously the iPads. So the fact that, you know, this does have a really uh, intuitive kind of cooling process where it takes heat from the bottom and blows it out the back uh, with a big copper heat sink for the M1 Ultra, it looks like, yeah, that, that's that's going to be well-cooled and you're going to be able to do your performance. Now, there are still downsides, and I'm actually surprised some reviewers actually brought this up because it's something we talked about on the last podcast when I went on that rant about how annoyed I was with the event. But, you know, actually some reviewers did bring up the fact that these can't be upgraded and that's kind of a downside. And I'm kind of glad that that that's a part of the narrative because I do think it's a really big deal breaker, at least for someone like me, where even if I was in a professional environment, I don't know how I could convince, uh, you know, either my boss or my employees to invest in machine this expensive that can't be upgraded or even something as, as simple as storage can't be upgraded going down the line. To me, that's that's like a huge issue. But, you know, they're here. They, they look great. The studio display, also out there, uh, pe- that's a little bit more hit and miss. Some people love it. Some people think it's a little bit overpriced. But overall, the impressions are it's a good display. It's just really expensive. Uh, and the iPad Air, similar thing. The Mac Studio, pretty impressive. It's an iPad Air with an M1 chip. And, you know, it's pretty much the exact same thing as the old iPad Air, but with a much more powerful chip. Uh, and I'm sure people who, who have workflows where that can be useful, that, that could be great. I think it makes a lot of people wish uh, for macOS on iPads, like we've talked about in the past on uh, on this podcast. But yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's also kind of cool to see. I think uh, I'm kind of curious to hear your impressions of the iPad Air and all these other devices because, you know, you're in... You've been in the Apple ecosystem in the past. You've used iPhones, you use iPads, you use Mac computers. How do you feel about this new kind of trajectory for for Apple and and which one of these products like interests you the most? Um so I'll go through it in I guess the order. This is kind of the order that the reviews came out in and then also the order that Apple announced them in. So the iPhone SE, you know, it's still a a good deal. And I think in the previous podcast, I kind of mentioned that, you know, the price bump, and we both mentioned that this is kind of troubling to see. Not that $30 is going to, you know, break the bank for anybody, but it starts with $30 and it's a $60 price bump. You know, we saw this with OnePlus, right? They didn't all of a sudden jump from a flagship killer to a flagship. They did it a little bit, bit by bit over their, what, 10 phones they're on now, but it's still a good deal. It's still, if you look at, okay, it's a $400 phone. If you look at the performance you're getting, because it has the A15, right? This is essentially the best chip you can have in a phone, in a $400 phone. Mm -hmm. So performance-wise, it's amazing. But when it comes to the design, and, you know, this is something that someone brought up in a review that I didn't think about. Apple supports their devices for a very long time, generally about like five years, I think they're going to, they support their phones. So this is an old design. It was an old design when the last SE came out. 
So now, two years later, it's even older. Let's say this phone lasts for five years, and I know some people are probably going to have it longer than five years. By the time it gets to five years from now, this is going to look that much more outdated than it already does. Yeah. Right. When you compare this $400 phone to other $400 budget friendly phones, right, they have bigger and better screens. They have smaller bezels. They have not necessarily better cameras, but they have more cameras. They have much better battery life. So the fact that like this phone technically isn't even out yet and it's already very outdated design wise i'm just worried about what it's going to look like in 5 years which is kind of it's nice that they support their products for so long and that their products work for so long but then it's also like you're really setting people up to be unhappy with this in 5 years from now but that's a problem for 5 years um when it comes to the ipad air as we said before as we've said multiple times I think the iPad Air is the best all-around tablet that Apple offers. When you look at the form factor in terms of the size, when you look at the design, when you, when you look at the features, I think this is the best tablet. I thought it was the best tablet before they put the M1 in it. Now that they've put the M1 in it, it's that much it's that much better. It makes every other iPad like I mean Obviously, it depends on the budget, right? $600 isn't cheap for a tablet. You can definitely get cheaper tablets out there. You can definitely get cheaper tablets from Apple. But I think in terms of what you get for what you pay, I think the iPad Air is in that sweet spot where it's sort of premium, but not super premium where you're spending like $1,000 for a tablet. And like, like you said, what are they waiting for now? with this this iPad OS right now what three out of your five tablets have an M1 chip in it have the same chip that you know powers your MacBooks powers your Mac mini powers your iMac the same chip and actually a better chip than yeah. is in the iMac and some of the entry level MacBooks so what are you waiting for give us i give us Mac OS on the iPads, like it can handle it. It can definitely handle it now. We have M1s in them. So yeah, I don't know. I think it's just, I think Apple is just stuck in their ways. They're never gonna do it. There's gonna be an M1 Ultra in an iPad before there's Mac OS on an iPad for whatever reason. Uh, we might even get M1 Ultra in an iPhone before we get Mac OS on an iPad. But I think it was a great device to, before. I think the iPad Air was a great device before. I think it's an even greater device now. If you're someone who's in the market for an iPad, I would highly recommend the Air over the base iPad, you know, as long as it's within your budget, over the iPad mini, over even the iPad Pros. I would say over the 11 and the 13 inch. Mm. But I mean, depends what you're using it for also and your budget. When it comes to the Mac Studio, I think it was, I think it, you know, we said this, it was pretty consistent with what people were saying. It is a very high level device. And a lot of the reviewers that I heard from or saw said that, hey, this is a very powerful device. And, you know, to their credit, because I was kind of skeptical when I first heard about the M1 Ultra. And I was like, oh, everyone was raving about M1. And then they raved about M1 Pro and M1 Max. And then what? Now they're going to rave about M1 Ultra again. And like, how many times can your workflow be changed? But to their credit, a lot of the people that I watched, at least, and I, I saw the reviews, they said, hey, this is very powerful. This is more powerful than I need. Like, people, most people don't need this. Most people won't even get the full usefulness out of this. And I'm glad that that was how a lot of people started off their reviews saying, hey, yeah, this is super powerful, but you don't need this power. I don't need this power. And these are people who, you know, run media companies and who do graphical editing. Not everyone needs this device, but I guess it's not designed for everyone. And it's, it's very interesting, too, because 
there are some things like Dave D, for instance. He's a YouTuber who does a lot of graphical editing, right? He brought up an interesting point, which not everyone would even consider, right? There are some apps, components, effects in apps, like in Adobe, I think Illustrator he was using, that use a lot of single-threaded performance in order to run their apps. M1 processors in general, whether it's M1, M1 Pro, M1 Max, M1 Ultra, don't have the best single-threaded performance. So as powerful as this chip can be, because it's not designed to have great single-threaded performance, there are certain aspects with, let's say, Adobe Illustrator that it just bogs down on and it lags on. Even though you can have double the power of an M1 Max, if your chip is designed in a certain way that doesn't, you know, isn't conducive with the apps or the tools that you're using, it's not going to be a great experience for you, which is something that was very interesting to see and that I wouldn't think of. I would think, oh, yeah, anyone doing any sort of graphic work is going to benefit from this. Another thing, too, that this is from The Verge's review, right? They were... They, as in Apple, Apple was claiming, oh, it's going to outperform this and it's going to outperform a 3090. But hey, the Verge happened to have a few 3090s and they compared it in a lot of benchmarks to the M1 Ultra. And they were saying, well, no, that's a complete lie. The M1 Ultra is getting blown out of the water by the 3090. And, you know, one kind of benchmark test is the, the Shadow of the Tomb Raider, which it's a video game. Macs aren't necessarily designed for running video games. They don't do it well, but it got blown out of the water there too. So it was good to see that, hey, you know, reviewers are taking these bold claims that Apple is making and they're saying, no, Apple, you're kind of, you're spitting BS out here. This, what you marketed, what you said was going to happen, didn't happen. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Your chip isn't outperforming the the flagship your chip isn't outperforming the flagship gpu that pcs use um another interesting thing that they said too because the verge had m1 max powered max studio and an m1 ultra powered max studio so they had both of the versions of the max studio and they said that yeah hey the m1 ultra in the stuff that they were doing in the rendering in the you know in the benchmarks the M1 Ultra definitely outperforms the Mac Studio. But in the tests that we're doing, we're not getting double the performance. It's a marginal improvement. It's, you know, there's a statistically significant difference, but we wouldn't say it's double the performance. And we also wouldn't say it's $2,000 more performance because that's the difference between the M1 Max version and the M1 Ultra version. So even they were saying, and this is, you know, a Vox media company who does video production, who does graphical editing, who does photography and, you know, film editing. And they're saying, hey, this device is great, but there's not that much difference from the M1 Max version, which is $2,000, to the M1 Ultra version, which is $4,000. And then when it comes to the studio display, generally what I saw what I heard was that this thing is overpriced. You know, we said it was overpriced and it, I'm glad that people who actually have it are saying it's overpriced because they're, you know, it's a 5K display. It has these USB-C ports on it. It has Thunderbolt. You can charge your MacBook Pro with it, but it's a 5K display, which isn't a very common display resolution. And it's just an LED. It's not like it's an OLED. It's not like it has mini LEDs. There's no HDR content on it. So when you're talking about someone who's in a studio that needs this for editing photos or editing videos or color grading, right? You'd probably want something that I guess has a better color representation okay. or can show HDR content. So the fact that it's what $1,500 for a display that doesn't do that. That's kind of a, yeah, it's kind of, in, I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. I'm not spending $1,500 on a display anyways, but if I was going to, I'd probably want something with a high refresh rate. I'd probably want something that's OLED. I would probably 
want something that at least can show HDR content. So it's kind of this device is designed, and this is from the reviews that I've seen and I've heard, it's designed for someone who, for whatever reason, strictly wants a 5K display in order to run their their Mac operating system and have it, you know, no scaling needed. This is run exactly how the people at Apple want this to be displayed. That's what they want the display for. But then when you even look at things like, let's say, their webcam that they put in the front, which is 12 megapixel, ultra wide, you can do center stage, which was a pretty big feature that they, you know, they harped on, which is a cool feature. But the webcam isn't even that great. It's worse, actually, than the MacBook Pros with M1. It's worse than the iMac with M1. It's even worse than the iPhone 13, right? So when you think about this is a $1,500 display, which part of why it's so expensive or why it's marketed as so expensive is because of this camera in the front. And actually, the camera isn't that good of a webcam when I'm, you know, the main reason I'm going to be using this is for video chat and then or video conferencing. I'm glad to see that people have called out Apple on, you know, once again, some of the the BS that they're putting out there. But I think overall, I think at least from the reviews that I've seen, I think it's what I expected. Mm -hmm. Like the SE, yeah, it's a good phone, but it's an old design. We just, it's long overdue to update the, the design of this phone. The iPad Air, great device. It's probably the best iPad for your dollar right now. The Mac Studio, very powerful. Not everyone needs it. Not everyone should get it. And actually, like the M1 Ultra isn't as game-changing. Let's say it's game-changing, but not everyone needs the game to be changed. And... The studio display is just an overpriced product from Apple. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the the summary that I've gotten from the reviews and things that I've seen from people with these devices. Yeah, I, I thought that was that was really good. That was very concise, um, and I kind of completely agree uh, with a, a lot of that take. And the interesting thing with the the M1 Studio. Uh, and the new chip, the Ultra chip. I'm I'm kind of glad you brought that up because one thing that um, Dave 2D mentioned in his video as well, and it's something that we talked about in the last podcast that I thought that hopefully this M1 Ultra chip would excel would be in something like Blender. Um, and he mentioned that, no, this chip is actually not great in Blender and is getting destroyed, like you mentioned, by 3090s, uh, which Apple specifically kind of compared to, which... I'm with you. That doesn't surprise me because they said the same thing about M1 Pro and M1 Max comparing it to 3080s and 3080 Ti's and that was also untrue. So it it was kind of a pattern um, for that. But when it comes to the Mac Studio and M1, the M1 line in general, there's always been two things that, uh, two main issues that I've had with them that weren't really talked about and I think are starting to get talked about now. And that is... M1, like you mentioned, single core performance, it's good, but it doesn't scale the way it does with multi-core. Generally, M1 Basic, uh, the M1 Pro and the M1 Max, single core performance is going to be nearly identical across the line. It's where it's the multi-core performance and the GPU performance uh, where you're going to start to see that increase. So specifically, if you're in a, a non-multi-threaded workflow, uh, you're going to get almost no performance upgrades from going from an M a basic level M one to an M one ultra, which is a little bit of a shame, right? Generally in the X 86 architecture, when you get a processor, like for example, an I three to an I nine, you're going to get faster clock speeds, but this is all different architecture, right? So the things are going to be different, but, uh, when it comes to, M1, I think the the key is these products, this chip in particular, this entire line is great if it works for you. But the problem is because it's ARM, because it's not x86, it's ARM and not everything is translated to this new architecture. And because it's specifically 
designed for multi-threaded workflows. If neither of those two things fall into your workflow, this chip probably isn't going to be great for you. And I think that's the, the reality that people are starting to see now. Uh, and it, it's going to be interesting to see how Apple responds to that. Do they give you more options with a pro? Do they try to, I think before they even come out with a pro, they have to get on developers to make their, their software, a get metal API integrated into these things so that these GPUs can be used to their full potential. And two, make sure that you are optimizing your programs for M1, because if developers don't do that, I mean, it's going to be a powerful machine that you can't really do much with, right? Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it, but regardless, if you're someone who lives in the Apple ecosystem, you use Final Cut, um, and, you know, I, I could imagine the, the Studio and the M1 Max and M1 Ultra are going to be great. And one cool thing, and this is one thing I'll really commend Apple for, once again, we talked about how great the ports are on this, on this new Studio, but it's considerably cheaper to get... Uh, identically spec M1 Max Mac Studio than it is for an M1 Max uh, Mac Pro, which I think is a really cool thing to see. Generally, when Apple releases a new product, it's going to be more expensive than the other ones, um, which wouldn't make much sense because a, obviously a laptop comes with a screen and a keyboard and the Mac Studio doesn't come with any of that. But yeah, you can save over $1,000, sometimes upwards to $2,000 on a, on a similarly specced uh, M1 Max Studio compared to the M1 um, Mac Pro, which I think is great because it gives someone who can use these machines effectively more options at different price points, which I think is great. Yeah, that is something good that they do. Jess, any closing statements? Uh, no, it's just uh, it's cool to see that we're going to finally uh, get these reviews for these products or we have finally gotten the re reviews for these products. One thing I'm really, really excited to see is a teardown of the Mac Studio. I want to know mm -hmm. how they put this thing together because I think you brought up in a conversation we had in the past about what you thought the Mac Pro might look like, the next version of the Mac Pro, where potentially you could you know, swap out entire boards uh, and upgrade them if you need to, which I really hope it's something that they do. I'm kind of curious to see if they lay the groundwork in the, the teardown of this thing. But yeah, that's just something I'm really curious to see. Yeah. I'm looking forward to Jerry Rig getting, or I guess Zach, really. Zach from Jerry Rig Everything getting his hands on one. Deeper grooves at a level seven. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Uh, take it easy, everyone in podcast land. Catch you in the next episode.